This is a time of the year across the country when youth pastors get to preach. Not here, not this year. Um, I really feel like God has got a, a, a directive he's trying to give us. His word is clear. And I think that all, that what we've gone through this year has been awful, but what would be more awful is if we didn't take into account what it has taught us and we didn't learn from it. If you'll remember, I said that way back. Above praying that God would hurry and bring this to an end, our prayer, overarching prayer, needs to be, God, don't, don't let us get out of this without knowing what you want us to take from it. Whatever you're trying to teach us, God, let us learn it. Uh, C.S. Lewis said that pain and suffering is God's megaphone, and that's what he's been doing. He's been speaking to us, I believe, through a megaphone this year. And so we need to tune our ears in and hear what he has to say. And so today I want to just simply talk about this topic, after the cradle, before the cross. Uh, we're going to be in Romans 5 today. If you have your Bibles with you, I hope you do. Look, turn to Romans 5, and we're going to read 6 through 11 in just a minute. But I want to give you some information. Bethlehem is about six miles southwest of Jerusalem, which is about a two-hour walk. It's about 45 minutes by bus and about 25 minutes by car and about 33-some-odd years by the will of God. Because the baby that was born in Bethlehem was on his way to a rugged cross at Calvary just outside of Jerusalem. And we've just celebrated the birth of our king but that should always remind us that our king was born to die. I'm not sure if you know this yet. I know I've already seen some of the Facebook posts that it's 365 days until Christmas. But today marks three months and eight days until Easter 2021. And that's 98 days or 2,352 hours roundabout. So two questions I want you to ponder as we talk today. What will you do with that time? What will you do between the time after the cradle and before the cross? Will you let the celebration of the cradle fade and never think about the cruelty of the cross? Or will you focus on what the birth means as we look to the coming cross? To help us think about those questions, I want to talk about what God did for us when he gave us Jesus. And I want to look at uh, three sections, three thoughts with two subsections under each one just to kind of give you the outline of how we're going to go through this. I want us to look at our former description. I want to look at his faithful declaration. And then I want to talk about our final deliverance. So if you would stand as we read our passage for today, Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. What a great passage of Scripture that Paul gave us when he wrote to the church at Rome. I'm, just, I'm always moved when I read this passage of Scripture primarily because of verse 8, but really everything around it, everything in its context. So we'll begin in verse 6. He says, While we were still helpless, at the appointed time Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person someone might even dare to die. But God proves His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than since we've now been declared righteous by His blood, we'll be saved through Him from wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by His life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have now received 
And what, no, underline that in your Bible, under the, underline that thought in your mind. We have now received, not earned, we have received this reconciliation through Him. God, speak to us today. Help us to take something away from this sermon, this time in your word, that will make us more faithful followers of the Lord Jesus. For His sake and in His name I pray, amen. You may be seated. So again, the three, we're going to go through three different topics, and each one of those has two little subheadings. So the first one will be our former description. This is from verses 6 and 7. The first thing I want us to notice there is in verse 6. What was our, what was our description? How, how are we described before Christ came? It says, for while we were still helpless. Helpless. It's very important to note that we were helpless, but God intervened on our behalf. He didn't intervene for those who refused the gift of eternal life, but He stepped into human flesh, stepped out of His glory to provide atonement for all of those who will call upon the name of Jesus. Now, this is a bigger deal than what we can comprehend. I'm just telling you, I'm not trying to insult your intelligence, but I, I, just, I don't think it's humanly possible for us to understand all that Christ did when He stepped out of glory into human flesh. Uh, while we were singing, I, my mind was kind of wandering a little bit. Uh, one of the, I can't remember what the, one of the lines just started me thinking about this part of the sermon. And, and all of the times in the Old Testament, there's a, there's a term called a Christophany. And it's basically a pre-incarnate appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's several of them, and, and maybe we'll get into those in 2021 even. But, but, but this is a time when, when he came in his pre-incarnate form, in his, uh, in his before his birth form, and appeared, and, and sometimes they're confused with angelic appearances, but, but these are different. Angels always say, don't worship me, and you'll find times in the Old Testament where something appeared to somebody, and, and they allowed the person to worship. Here's what I need you to understand. We can't comprehend what he stepped down. The, the, the term used is he condescended. And I, I know sometimes that has a negative terminology or negative uh, thought when we think about that word condescending, like somebody's being insulting by talking down to somebody. No, he condescended. He stepped down out of what he deserved into what he didn't deserve. He stepped down out of his glory into flesh and bone. We can't comprehend that. The, probably the closest thing that we could come up with is if our president stepped out of the White House and became a homeless man. If, if Donald Trump or Joe Biden, whoever's in the White House, stepped out, left the White House, left the Secret Service, left all of his uh, rich clothes and, and fine dining and pomp and circumstance and just came down to, to, to Florella and, and moved out in the woods into a tent. Do you get the picture? And listen, that's not even the half of it. That's not even a drop in the bucket compared to all that God gave up when he became man. So let's, let's start there that we were helpless and God chose to step out of His glory into our condition. The Greek word for helpless here is asthenes. Asthenes. And it literally means without strength. The, the first part of the word is without, and the second part is strength. It means without strength. Without strength. Listen, not weak. Not, not, not you know, weakened, but getting better. Not getting stronger. Without strength. Literally, you could take it into what Ephesians 2, 1 says. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. There's nothing more without strength than a dead person. Amen? That's what we are. We were helpless. 
We had no hope. We had no power to overcome the condition that we found ourselves in. Dead men may not tell any tales, but we sure can get in a lot of trouble. Amen? Ephesians 2 goes on to say in verses 4 and 5 this great statement. Listen to this. Let me give you the context. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now watch this. Watch what God does. But God. There was nothing else, Mason. There was no other path. There was no other hope. There was no other strength. You were without strength. You were dead. But God. The intervention of the King. The intervention of the Creator. The ruler of all eternity. The, the God who spoke and things came to life. He spoke and planets orbited the sun. He spoke and the universe sprang into existence. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love that He had for us, made us alive with the Messiah even though we were dead in trespasses. Do you think Paul's trying to drive a point home? Church, you were dead even though you were dead. In between those things, but God. You were dead, you would still be dead, but God. You were helpless, you'd still be helpless, but God. Y'all better get excited this Sunday morning after Christmas. If, we, if, if all of our excitement was spent unwrapping presents, we ought to just fold it up and go to the house. 1 Peter 2.10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Y'all didn't hear that. I didn't hear one amen. And I know that y'all can't sit there and listen to Peter's words. You were not a people, but now you are God's people. Amen. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see the condition? Helpless, dead, hopeless, without any, any possibility of getting out of our infirmary. There's an old hymn called, His Hand Reached Further Down. This is one of the lines from it. God's hand reached further down than I could reach up. Whew. The first song we sang today, Grayson and I were talking last week, and I said, hey, I'm, I'm kind of polishing up everything. I'm finishing up. I, I feel like there's something missing. What, what are we singing Sunday? I said, I know I can look on Planning Center, but just tell me real quick. We were talking about something else. And he started running the list, and I said, oh, man. Every song, every song just fell right into place. The first verse of that song points us to the fact that we, we couldn't reach God. I talked about it Christmas Eve. Every other world religion says this is how you get to God. And only Christianity, only the, the truth of Jesus Christ says this is how God came to you. Because you could not get to Him. God reached His hand further down than I could reach up. His mercy is more. So we were helpless. But look at verse 7. We were also hopeless. It says, for rarely will someone die for a just person. I know you probably got, some of y'all got different translations. There's a lot of different words it uses there. Uh, a righteous person, uh, you know, uh, a godly person. L listen to the Greek word, dikaios. Uh, dikaios. It means innocent, holy, or righteous. Keep in mind, this isn't some hypothetical statement. This isn't saying that someone would hypothetically, hey man, I'd take a bullet for that guy. I've said that. Anybody else? Well, what if somebody pulled out a gun? Oh, now, hey, <laughs> I, was being, I was being hypothetical there. I, <clears throat> I don't literally mean I want to take a bullet for him. I mean, I, I would you know, theoretically, in this kind of you know, imaginary world, I would take a bullet for him. 
That's not what we're talking about. And we're not talking about specifically somebody related to you. We're not talking about, listen, most any mother in here would die for their kids. Most any father in here would die for their kids. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about Meemaw and Peepaw. I'm not talking about your favorite aunt or your favorite uncle. I'm not talking about mom and them. I'm not talking about your kids or your grandkids. I'm talking about any random just person. If they were a just person, here's the problem with that statement. There's not a just person. Let me say this. I won't say there's not one person in here who might have somebody willing to die in their place, but I will unequivocally say, look at me, I do not deserve anyone laying down their life for me. I'm not worth it. I'm not a just person. I'm not a righteous, holy, perfect, innocent person. I am a flesh and blood human being with failures and flaws. I I hear people say, man, some people don't like you. Good, they can get in line because I don't like me. And get right behind me. I don't deserve to have the sinless Son of God take my punishment and pay my debt. But that's what he did. And he didn't do it because I was just. He did it to make me just. Bless God, he did it because he loved me. Because he was perfect. He gave me his perfection. He brought hope to the hopeless. He brought life to the lifeless. He made a home for the homeless. And he gave purpose to the useless. He gave me purpose, he gave me giftings, and then he gave me a calling that makes my life count because it counts to and for him. Let me remind you of that second verse of the first song we sang today, His Mercy is More. What patience would wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, (laughs) the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. So that was our former description. Now let's look at his faithful declaration in verses 8 and 9. Number one, the first thing I want to talk about under that heading is his love is proven. His love is proven. Listen to this. But God proves his own love for us. Now, first of all, before I even get any further, he didn't have to. God doesn't owe you anything. Okay, let me tell you something. We've got some young people in here this morning. Some of the parents are breathing a sigh of relief that we've moved off of the topic we talked about last Sunday. All right, so this is going to be instructional. All right, you young people, listen to me. The old, the old, if you've got gray in your hair, you understand. Some of y'all have dyed it out, but it's okay. If it's either turned gray or turned loose, you already understand this. But those young people in here, I want you to hear me. God didn't owe you anything. He didn't owe to prove you anything. The world doesn't owe you anything. If you hear people say, well, life isn't fair, well, who lied to that cat? Who told him life was fair? It wasn't. If life was fair, Jesus never would have come down here and died in your place. So let me ask you this. How do we prove our love for our spouse, our parents, our children, grandchildren? How do we prove that? Do gifts prove our love? I think sometimes people think they do. I see, I've seen people that try to gift their way out of problems. They try to gift their way out of failures or, or, or just meanness. They try, to, they try to give an extravagant gift to kind of overcome that. What about acts of kindness? Do acts of kindness prove our love? If we go to the soup kitchen, does that prove we love those people? If we give a, a, a homeless person that's begging for money, if we give them $5, does that prove we love them? Uh, if, if we allow people, if we're quote-unquote tolerant, we allow people to believe whatever in the world they want to believe is true, they, they can worship. Like I've told you before, they worship a Jesus with whom I'm unfamiliar because he seems to be good with stuff that the Jesus I know is not good with. Is that prove our love? And we let people live any old way they want to and think they're going to heaven. Does that prove our love? 
Now consider that God gave a gift and performed the greatest act of kindness in all of history. And listen to me, he did it while we were still his enemies. If God was waiting for me to be good enough, Jason, he'd still be waiting. There still would not be a Messiah who would put foot on this earth if he was waiting for me to be good enough. If he was waiting for me to get to the point where I could earn what Jesus was going to do, we'd still be waiting for the New Testament to be written. I would never be good enough. You would never be good enough. You would never reach the level that you would need to reach where God would say, okay, now you've done enough for me to give you my son. We were his enemies. You've heard me say it before. We were on the opposite lines in the battle. We were standing across the battlefield looking at God with our weapons, measly and meager as they may be, aimed at him. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't a loving spouse with a ring or a rifle. It wasn't a loving child with a drawing or a dinner. It was the God of all creation stepping out of His glory in heaven, coming in flesh and blood to walk this earth, to face all that we face and then some and yet never give in to sin. Hebrews 4.15 tells us He was tempted in all manners as we are, yet without sin, so that He could become, He could be the sinless, spotless Lamb that takes away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist proclaimed in John 1.29. Philippians 2.6 says, talking about Jesus, said, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. <laughs> That's the craziest thing. Listen, we got people who will use anything for their own advantage. Hey, I got a friendship over here with this guy. I'm going to see if I can't get him to hook me up. Hey, I know a guy down at the DMV. Hey, I know somebody at the doctor's office. I'm going to get in line. We got, we had a, the, I'm not going to get on this rant here. We had a professional sports league. Their commissioner had to write a letter to all the players saying, Hey, don't jump in line to get the vaccine. What kind of ridiculous method of thinking about things would make you think that because you were rich from playing a game that you deserve to be over somebody else to get the vaccine before they could get it. Somebody who's more at risk, somebody who's got more underlying health problems, who has more comorbidities, you would think that you would be able to get in line ahead of them because you've got money. That's the way we think. That's the way flesh thinks. I'm looking out for me. To quote the great movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I got to do for me and mine. This is the mentality of every human being. Again, this is why we know that the Ten Commandments were from God because if they were from Moses, there would have been an Eleventh Commandment that said to do whatever Moses says to do. But God did, Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Those on heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the first thing in in his faithful declaration is that his love is proven. The second thing is his atonement is proclaimed. Look at verse 9. We have now been declared righteous by God. His blood. Get that, church. We have been declared righteous by His blood. We weren't righteous before. 
We don't get declared righteous by our church attendance or by our religious affiliation, by our denomination, by our giving, by anything else. We are declared righteous. Why? By the blood of Jesus. We don't proclaim ourselves righteous. God does that. The blood of Jesus says we're righteous and it saves us from the wrath of God that we richly deserve. Romans 3.25 says it this way. God presented him as a propitiation. Y'all heard me say this. Grayson always laughs. This is my favorite King James word in all of the King James. And I love that it still carries over because it's such a solid word. Propitiation through faith in his blood to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint God passed over the sins previously committed. Now, by the way, in this one verse in Romans, he's got two very Old Testament thoughts. Let me give you a couple of definitions. And I'm going to talk about each one of them. Propitiation. Uh, hilasterion. Hilasterion is the Greek word. As a propitiatory sacrifice or as an offering of atonement or as a mercy seat. We'll get to that in a minute. St. Corinthians 5.21. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Think about it this way. When we come under Christ, we put on His righteousness that covers our sinfulness. The Holy Spirit then comes inside of us and starts digging away that sinfulness in, a, in an act called uh, 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 sanctification. We are, we are being sanctified. We're being made more into the image of Jesus from the inside out by His Holy Spirit. But when we come to Christ, we are justified. We are covered in the blood. We are covered by the, the protection of the blood of Jesus. And that blood screams out, we are righteous. It declares our righteousness. It's the same word here used in Hebrews 9.5, this same word propitiation is used in Hebrews 9.5 for the mercy seat where it's talking about the high priest making propitiation for the people once per year by sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat of the ark. Listen, this is what Jesus did. The priest did it once a year by sprinkling blood on the ark. Jesus did it once and for all by spilling his precious blood on a cross. 1 John 4, verses 10 through 12. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Listen, He paid our debt and He took our punishment. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and His love is perfected in us. What are we going to do between the cradle and the cross? What are we going to do from now until Easter? What are we going to do with 2021? All of these questions hinge on how we love. How we show the love of Christ. 1 Peter 2.24 He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. We, we, you have been healed by His wounds. We have been healed by the wounds suffered on that tree. And the second word there in that, in that uh, Romans 3.25, that's a very Hebrew phrase, is passed over. Parasis. Parasis is the Greek word. It means remission in the sense of overlooking, not punishing. Look, overlooking, not, not that you never sin anymore, but it's overlooked. You are forgiven for it. That's how you can be justified, just as if I'd never sinned. Then the Holy Spirit has to be inside of you working into sanctification to get all that other stuff out so that you grow into the likeness of Christ. We grow at different rates. Some people are, are following Jesus and they still look like a toddler even though they've been following him for 5 or 10 or 15 years. 
Other people come to Christ and they have a, a different calling on their life and they proceed faster. They grow in the, in the love and mercy of God faster. They study the Word more. They get more excited about it. There's different things that happen in the life of a believer, but all of it is growing us closer to the Lord Jesus. What this word passed over means, it means that God did all the work and gave forgiveness in place of punishment by giving punishment to Jesus. Let me read that again. He gave forgiveness in place of punishment by giving punishment to Jesus. He washed away our sins with the blood of His very own Son. Can I just tell you something? I love you guys. I'm looking around here and I see some faces of people I dearly love. I love everybody here. There's not one person in here that I would give my son for you. If you were held captive and they said, well, you've got to give me Tyler or we're, we're not going to let him go, I'm, I'm going to pray for you. But I'm not giving my son for you. And yet that's what God did for me. The third verse of that song, His Mercy is More, says, What riches of kindness He lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. Man, His mercy is more. So we see our former description. We see His faithful declaration. Now let's look at our forever deliverance. The first thing I want us to see under our forever deliverance is that we are reconciled. Look at verse 10. We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Reconciled is a Greek word, katalaso, which means to change mutually. I'm not going to dwell on this, but I want to make sure you understand that katalaso means to change mutually, and it's opposed to the word dialaso, which means to reconcile when the fault may lie on the part of both parties concerned. Catch this now. The fault doesn't lie on both parties, so that word is not applicable. It also is not the same as apocatalasso, which is to reconcile completely and change from one condition to another. This is a very specific use of a very specific Greek word that means to mutually change. In other words, God justifies us by the blood of Jesus when we accept the gift of God's grace that was displayed on that cross. He didn't die on the cross and there's some magic spell that happened and everybody is going to heaven. That's not how it works. If our decision played no part in reconciliation, then there would be no possibility of the unforgivable sin of rejecting the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible says. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is rejecting the Holy Spirit. That's the only unforgivable sin. Why is it unforgivable? Because you reject the very grace that God is trying to give you through the death of His blood. He, you will not let Him justify you. Now listen to what R.H. Mounts, a biblical uh, commentator, said about this. <clears throat> he said, reconciliation is a personal relationship. It cannot be a unilateral action on the part of God alone. He has provided forgiveness for all people through the once-for-all death of His Son. Only when that forgiveness is accepted by faith is the compact completed and reconciliation takes place. God's part is finished. Our part is a matter of individual decision. Now, I want to be clear. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ, not of works, lest no man should boast. All right, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. But here's what I want you to understand. God did not send His Son to die on the cross so that everybody could go to heaven regardless of what you do with your life. You have to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You have to respond to the call of God. God woos you. 
He draws you. The Holy Spirit is drawing people to Christ. And you have to respond in obedience to say, Yes, Lord, I confess my sins. I confess my need for Jesus. And I accept the free gift of grace that you've bestowed by giving us your son to die in our place and to pay our debt and to take our punishment. I, I relinquish myself. I surrender to Christ. That doesn't mean you did any of the work, but you have to accept God's forgiveness. You have to, you have to come under the lordship of Jesus. So that is how we are reconciled. We should also, the number two, second thing is we should be rejoicing. Look at verse 11. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only proper response to the end of a war is rejoicing. If you go back and look at our history, when we have won a world war, you'll see plenty of pictures of big ticker tape parades and big celebrations going, up, going all over the country when the war is ended and there's a peace that has been proclaimed. That is what should happen in the life of a believer. Once we have laid down our arms, we have surrendered to God, the war is over. And we should rejoice. We were enemies of God, but we've been brought into the family of God. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. Remember, you were dead in your sins, but you've been made alive through Christ, but God. And then you were not a people, but now you're God's people. You are far away. You've been brought near. Do you see all of what Paul's trying to do in this chapter of Ephesians 2? He's trying to get us to understand our separation, our condemnation, and now our, our justification. We're brought in. God doesn't have any grandchildren. You have to surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not going to get in on your parents. You're not going to get in on your grandparents. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says that God sends an angel down to the church to look at the membership roles. It, there's, none of those things are going to happen. It is your personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. Once you have come under the Lordship of Jesus, the war is over and you should rejoice in that, in that peace. The word rejoice there is a Greek word that means to boast, to glory. To, to have joy. This is what should delineate us from people who don't know Christ. Not our, not our condescending attitudes. Not our looking down our nose at everybody because their sin is different than your sin. We should be rejoicing in the Lord Jesus. We should be telling people all that Jesus has done for us and in us. And what he can do for them. What he has done when he paid that price and took that punishment. And all they have to do is respond in obedience to what God is asking them to do. So here's my question for you. Does your life reflect the joy that should be found in a person who was guilty and has been sentenced to death but was pardoned? Or does your life look like somebody still sitting on death row? You've heard me talk about my friend Derek. We got a Christmas card from Derek the other day. Uh, and Derek also sent me some of his uh, uh, sermons. He's been doing some Bible studies. He's been, been uh, preaching in their little uh, chapel services. And he sent me some of those to read. <laughs> he's sitting on death row and he's trying to preach the gospel everybody look at me I love you I'm not trying to hurt your feelings here the two days after Christmas but what are you doing? what's your excuse? this man is sitting on death row he's never going to see the light of day as a free man again he's going to die in a prison and yet he's writing messages to preach to other inmates. He's sending uh, emails to me to, to, to encourage me and tell me all that God is doing in his life. What are you doing? 
The second verse to his mercy is more says, What love could remember? No wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into the sea without a bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. So we see our former description. We were helpless. We were hopeless. We see his faithful declaration. His love was proven and his atonement was proclaimed. And then we see our forever deliverance. We were reconciled and we should be rejoicing. So I know you've sat through 30 minutes of this, but let me give you the summary. (laughs) This is why you don't give cliff notes at the beginning. You know, if you show up to class and they say, here's the one thing you got to know for the final. All right. Here's the brief summary of this passage. We were enemies of God without any way to end the war. But God loved us enough to make a way for us through Jesus. And we should never stop celebrating that reality. It's after the cradle. It's before the cross. What are you going to do with that time? We can worship him in the cradle, but we must never lose sight of the cross. We can rejoice over his infancy, but we have to keep in mind his intention. And we should celebrate his dawning, but we must never forget his destination. Let me go back and read this for you real quick. The last part, verse 10 and 11. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have now received this reconciliation through him. Can I just encourage you this morning, church? You have received this reconciliation through him. And Paul would go on to tell us that we are ministers of reconciliation. Because we've been given this reconciliation, because God has reconciled us to himself, he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. What does that mean? That means we are to be proclaimers that God is in the reconciling business. We should be telling everyone we come in contact with, hey, don't just celebrate the little baby Jesus. Be ready for the coming king. The line of Judah is coming back. The king is going to return. What are you going to do between the cradle and the cross? What are you going to do between now and Easter to prepare yourself for that celebration? I want to tell you this, and I don't say this flippantly. I don't say this lightly. Jillian, you can come on. I don't say this flippantly or lightly. I want to tell you this. There is no greater holiday in Christianity than Easter. I want you to hear me. Christmas would be a sweet story If it weren't for the cross. The cross would be a terrible tragedy. If it weren't for Easter Sunday. My hope. Is that you're not going to let your. uh, Thoughts of Jesus. Stay. In the manger. My thought. My my hope is that your thoughts are not going to stay. In the tomb. My hope. Is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, that we would be a church that is about the Father's business. Between the cradle and the cross and everything else, that we are focused on getting that message of reconciliation out to be people of rejoicing, to be people that look like they've been forgiven of a lot and that they live in a way 
that reflects their appreciation for that. You can never earn what Jesus did for you, but you ought to live the rest of your life trying to because of all that He's done. If you would stand. I'm going to have just a brief time of invitation. There, there's, I'm not going to be here and not give you an opportunity to respond to the gospel. I'm not. I'm not going to come try to f- fluff and, and, and pomp and jump around and all that stuff and be excited and then just leave you. If you need to do business with God, if you need somebody to pray with you, if you need somebody to talk to you about giving your life to Christ, about rededicating your life to the Lord, about joining this church, becoming a member of Westmobile Baptist Church, we're here to do that. We're happy to do that. But what I want you to do this morning is different. I want you to think about what you're going to do. What are you going to do? Not what are we going to do. Not what's the pastor, the staff, my Sunday school teacher. What are you going to do with this reconciliation that you've been given? You were dead. He made you alive. You were not a people. He made you his people. You were far away and he brought you near. You were enemies of God. And while you were sinners, Christ died for you. What are you going to do with that? If you've surrendered your life to Jesus, praise God. That's the greatest decision you could ever make. If you need to do that now, move. Don't wait. Walk up here. Be bold. Be brave. Jesus hung naked on a cross. You can walk up here and tell people that you're going to follow Him. But whatever you do, don't miss out on the fact that God intervened on your behalf, reconciled you through the propitiation that Jesus was, and now He's called you to live a life that points people to Jesus. What are you going to do between the cradle and the cross?